Hello and welcome to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, I'm a research fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And today we're talking about two things. One, we're talking about street smart animals. Now, I consider myself moderately street smart. I look both ways before crossing the road. I can even read a map. It's the second element of today's topic that I struggle with, cognition. Now, in preparation, first thing I did was, yes, I googled it. Apparently, cognition is the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience and the senses, maybe also via Google. Today we will learn all about what cognition is, I really, really need it, and hopefully well beyond the Wikipedia definition. And also we'll look at how we can use it in conservation practices. And how are we going to learn about this? Using the cognitive method of podcasting. And also being guided by our knowledgeable and highly cognitive co-host, Claudia Martina. Hi, Claudia. Hi, Moni. Claudia is based at the Department for Anthropology at University College London and here at ZSL as well, and is working on baboons. Now, they're really smart, right? So I get asked this question a lot, and I always find it very difficult to answer. I would say that it depends on your definition of smart. So baboons are really um, highly social, and the social society is very complex. They're also incredibly flexible in their behavior, and they manage to basically exploit every resource in their environment. So that to me is pretty smart. But if you're thinking more about problem solving and tool use and mathematical abilities, then they're not that smart. But I'm biased towards baboons, so... I think I forgive them that they can't do maths, to be quite honest. It's probably <laughs> yeah. asking a little bit a lot. It would be a bit hypocritical of me as well to go like, yeah. mm, that's not smart. Now we will get into your baboon work a little bit more in a bit, Claudia, because I'm super interested in that. But in a nutshell, what is cognition without using Google? Well, I think I'm going to have to use another definition here, but hopefully it will be a lot more straightforward than Google. Cognition is really difficult to define. So the best definition would be that cognition is the process through which animals acquire, store, process, and then later use information they get from their environment. Obviously, all of this process develops into cognitive behaviors. And because these cognitive behaviors are also very difficult to define, you probably heard of them as learning, memory, problem solving. All of these requires this cognitive process. So I suppose our first guest also has a thing or two to say about um, cognition. Uh, yes, we have here with us Dr. Alex Thornton. He's an associate professor of cognitive evolution at University of Exeter, and he is an expert in all things cognition, studying from meerkats to corvids. So Alex, if you had to explain cognition briefly in the tiniest of nutshells, what would you say cognition is? I think in a nutshell, we can think of cognition as information processing. So if you imagine we take in information through our senses and then in our brains we use cognitive processes that determine what we pay attention to, perhaps we might learn things, so we might learn associations between different things in the environment and then we use all of that information processing to make decisions. So cognition is what happens in between the information in the environment and the behaviour that we produce in response. 
I was already much more useful than my uh, Googled Wikipedia explanation <laughs> that I did in preparation for this podcast. So I'm just now processing information that you are telling me about cognition. And fingers crossed I will retain it and then also maybe use it in future. So maybe next time avoiding hosting a podcast that I don't know anything about. Is this an example of cognition? Absolutely, yes. So people tend to think that cognition is this really complicated thing, but really, you know, all animals use cognition. We even know, you know a nematode worm that has 320 neurons is capable of learning. So, you know, you and I are using cognition as we speak. So if cognition allows animals to process information about their environment and make appropriate decisions based on this, how is this important in a conservation context? The reason it's important is that Animals have evolved cognitive processes that allow them to make sensible decisions in the environments in which they've evolved. The problem is that we are now changing those environments drastically. So animals are facing all sorts of problems, all sorts of challenges that are totally different to the ones that they're evolved to deal with. And so that might lead them to make incorrect decisions, problematic decisions. So I guess a classic example is if you imagine a sea turtle eating a plastic bag because it looks like a jellyfish. That's an, an instance of, of cognition gone wrong. It's an ecological trap, if you like, that the cognitive processes that have allowed these turtles over generations to survive in the oceans are now the cause of their demise. So by thinking about how animals acquire and process information from the environment, in some cases we can use that to further conservation. So a little birdie told me that apparently crows are a good example of a species using cognition and kind of making the best of their environment. That's right, your little birdie told you correctly. <laughs> a um, little crow. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, th I guess if you think of most of us have probably heard of the catastrophic declines in, in birds in, in this country and throughout the world, most birds have declined in response to changes to the environment, such as the intensification of agriculture and so on. But birds of the crow family, by and large, are doing very well. Their numbers are actually increasing. And that's largely because these birds are very, very good at taking advantage of opportunities that arise with living alongside people. So they're very wary of new things, which means that they, they avoid danger. But at the same time, once they overcome their wariness, then they're really good at exploiting new opportunities. Is that a little bit like seagulls, for example? I do remember I did my undergrad in Aberdeen and there was this news story at some point where this corner shop where this enormous seagull always came in and started stealing crisp packets. Mm -hmm. I mean, it clearly learned that there's a food source somewhere else that's human-made, right? That's easy pickings. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I mean, we, we really don't know all that much about gull cognition, but it's a cool new area. So some of my colleagues at the University of Exeter are actually working on trying to understand some of the aspects of how gulls process information. Hopefully that can help us to reduce some of the conflict that we see between humans and gulls. People forget that herring gulls, for example, are they're endangered, they're a red-listed species, but people just think of them as a nuisance species. So many of the conservation biologists don't have this cognitive behavior background, and I think it's not necessarily obvious that cognition can be used in conservation. So what sort of examples can you give of bringing cognition into conservation? I suppose I'll give you a couple of examples. So one is in, in Australia, where there's, there's been big problems with these invasive cane toads that have spread throughout Australia, and they're toxic. So native animals see these big, juicy, tasty-looking toads, eat them, and die. And obviously that's not ideal for these animals. So there's some animals that take small bites and those animals actually seem to show aversion learning. So they take a small bite, it tastes disgusting, 
they don't take another bite, so they learn. But there's other animals, like quolls, for example, these funny-looking little marsupials, that really go for it. So they take a great big chunk out of a cane toad and then drop dead. So there are now programs in Australia where they're actively trying to train quolls to avoid cane toads. And it seems to be working. So that's a nice case where kind of explicitly thinking about the fact that the animals need to associate a stimulus here, the toad, with a negative outcome in order to prevent them from doing something. That's been really, really useful. Another example I can give you is actually a former PhD student of mine, Alison Greger, who's now working in Hawaii. So Alison has been in charge of trying to reintroduce the Hawaiian crow into the wild. Hawaiian crows were extinct in the wild, there were some left in captivity, and all previous attempts to reintroduce them have failed. And the reason they failed is that these crows are naive. They grew up in captivity, they get sent out into the wild, and they immediately get eaten by predators because they don't recognize predators. So in a lot of animals, crows included, information about predators is, is culturally transmitted. It's learned from one individual to another. And so Alison and her colleagues in Hawaii have been doing work where they're actively trying to train birds to recognize predators prior to release. And so far it seems to be going really well. They've reintroduced some birds, they're all still alive, and last I heard a couple of weeks ago uh, they were starting to breed. So again this is a nice instance where really thinking about cognition can have major positive benefits. I think the, the cane toad is like a very specific case. I mean you mentioned this like transmission of information from mother to infant or from mm. like conspecific to conspecific but I think in the case of the cane toad, if an animal just goes for the toad and dies, that information mm. is sort of finished, yeah. not passed along. Mm. So since you mentioned that, is social learning something that can be used in such specific cases? Potentially, and to be honest, I don't know whether they are yet able to harness social learning in the specific case of the, of the quals. But certainly in a lot of cases, we know that individuals pay attention to what other individuals are doing and new information can spread. But we also need to think about who learns from who. So there's some animals, elephants famously, where the matriarchs are repositories of knowledge. So you know these, these matriarchs acquire knowledge throughout their lives to do with the location of water holes and also the location of other elephants in the vicinity and whether they're likely to be friendly or not. And if that matriarch is removed, the productivity of the whole group goes down. And there's similar evidence in, in killer whales, for example. So really thinking about not only what the animals are learning, but who holds the information and what happens if those individuals are removed is really important. So how do animals acquire information? Well, our next guest definitely knows Graham Martin is Emeritus Professor at the School of Biosciences at the University of Birmingham. That's a lot of words and very difficult for me to say. And he does a lot of research on sensory ecology. Hi, Graham. Hello. Uh, just to clarify, we're using a lot of big words today, at least for me. So what's sensory ecology and how does it link to cognition? Right, well, sensory ecology is just basically trying to understand the information that animals have in their interactions with their environment, which may be other animals as well. So it's basically coming down to look at the sensory capacities of animals, well in my case birds particularly, uh, and we could be talking about all senses although my particular interest has always been in vision and some in hearing. So naturally an animal doesn't only rely on one sense. 
how can they cope with using multiple senses at the same time? Well, how, how they cope, I don't know. I mean, all we can say is that they must be uh, picking up information from all the senses. But I mean, we, we have no problem in coping with multiple senses. You're looking at me and you're probably listening to what I say, so you're getting visual and auditory information at the same time. But uh, I'm concentrating really hard. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so I think you're right. I mean, multiple senses are used for all sorts of tasks and one of the interesting things in sensory ecology is trying to work out how the information might chain one thing into another under different circumstances. So do all animals acquire information in the same way? Is it the same for all of us? Oh gosh no, I mean I've studied now and published papers on about 60 different species of birds, their vision, aspects of their vision, not the same thing every time and I'm very confident to say that no two bird species really live in the same world. They're, their sensory capacities, and especially their visual capacities, are very finely tuned to accomplishing certain tasks in certain environments. Each species has got a different suite of sensory capacities that gives them different sorts of information. So your work is primarily with birds, yeah. and we know that this is a particularly vulnerable group to environmental change. Yeah. So with all this change, what are some of the limitations birds might experience? Well, one of the things that came out of a lot of my work was that when you actually delve to try and understand, say, how an owl is nocturnally active or how a deep diving bird is able to extract food from well down below the water surface, is that you find that they actually do very sophisticated things using what I call a paucity of information. They've not got everything available to them. They've got some information, but they have behavioural adaptations that enable them to overcome that. And also, in the say in the case of nocturnal birds, there is a big cognitive component as well that enables them to interpret what are really quite minimal cues so that they're in a position where they have information about the environment in which they sit and so when it's minimal cues when their acuity isn't very good low light levels all that sort of thing they can interpret that information successfully so there is a big cognitive component goes into a lot of these things so they're essentially making the most with very little information in many ways. Yeah, like that's right. Snapshot. I mean, if, if you sort of stand outside and look at them, you think, gosh, they must know everything that's going on in here. I tried to understand nocturnality in woodland owls, and, you know, and I can't see things, and they obviously mm. can. Turns out they can't see those things, but they live in that environment in such a way, they're very sedentary, and that enables them to build up enough bits of information so that they can interpret all those quite successfully. Oh, there's a pun coming up, so they're winging it successfully, right? Well, no, well, <laughs> they put in a lot of work before they can wing uh, it. <laughs> well, you know, all the best winging it, to be quite honest, does require yeah, yeah, a little yeah, bit of research. Yeah. But actually, I mean, if you want to make a comparison with, with ourselves, that often worries me, is what information have you actually got when you're driving down a road at 100 kilometres an hour at night, even with headlights, if you suddenly think, Ooh, what am I actually responding to at this moment? You can get very frightened because you realise you've got really minimal information available to you. Now, most of the time it works and you're predicting that the world won't change very much. And there are minimal cues, which are very, very stereotyped and regular because of the way our roads are engineered and the signs and everything. And so, you know, we're all the time going beyond what the immediately available information is but interpreting it successfully because we're in a sort of safe environment or an environment that we know our way around. Cool, that was a really good 
analogy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I'm a little bit afraid of driving. Well, the interesting thing is that if you, you think about what happens on, on, you know, really fast roads, motorways and things like that, if there are sort of known hazards ahead, there's huge numbers of cones, signs and everything are put out. And they don't put those out just for the sake of putting them out. They put them out because yeah. it's actually very difficult when you're driving and you're, you're got into that mode and you're relying upon that minimal information successfully yeah. to actually alert somebody that the world's going to change. It's not going to be the same. So you have to be overloaded with contrary information, as it were, yeah. to suddenly t- pick it up. Yeah, and we've also learned to recognise certain signals that yeah. allow us to be like, oh, okay, road ahead or dangerous curve. Yeah. So we're responding to this information that yeah. we we already have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- th- this has important implications as well, just thinking of it in those terms. Some of the birds with the highest acuity, the best vision that we know of in vertebrates, not just in birds, are really quite vulnerable to collisions with power lines and wind turbines. And do we know why that is? I think I've got one explanation, yes. And and that comes back to something that's quite fundamental to looking at that specialisation of sensory systems is that there is always a trade-off. You can't do everything. And it turns out that if you really want to have high acuity, you've got to have a big eye, you know, something about the size of our eye. Our eyes are quite big. But what you don't want to do is to get the sun in your eyes. And we don't like the sun in our eyes, you know, we've got eyebrows, we keep our heads down, people even wear sort of baseball caps to keep the sun out and all that sort of thing. Because if you image the sun on your retina, not that it particularly damages your retina, it would if you looked at it for long enough, but the image of the sun is so bright that it bounces light all around inside your eye and you you get glare, which reduces your resolution, your acuity across the whole of your visual field. And so if you look at the birds which have got the highest acuity, eagles, vultures, bustards, that sort of thing, with big eyes. They have eyebrows, they have eyelashes, and they have devices to keep the sun out of their eyes. They also have a big blind area above their head. And the problem with that is that if you're an eagle or a vulture, you tend to fly around looking down because you're interested in what's on the ground, because that's where your food is, you're, you're searching for prey on the ground. And um, when, when they're flying around, they tip their head forward to see the ground. They're actually flying blind in the direction in which they travel. Now, normally, that's not going to be a problem. They're flying in open habitats without anything there. So they've evolved to keep the sun out of their eyes, to maintain their high acuity so they can see things at a great distance. But it does leave them then vulnerable if we as humans go and put blooming great things up in the sky. And they're just not looking where they're going, you know, basically, when they're busy foraging on the ground. So, you know, we, we, we've created the hazard, um, but, you know, it's, it's a very recent hazard and it's worked very well, but it's essential they don't really see where they're going because they don't want the sun in their eyes because then it would muck up their vision down to the ground to see prey. So from a conservation point of view, I mean, you just described how birds basically are facing the ground yeah. because they look for prey. Would it be useful to put some sort of visual cue that would alert them up ahead, dangerous well, power you know, line. It's difficult to say what you would put out to warn them there's a power yeah. line. But no, you're, you're absolutely right, because one of the conclusions that we came to was that if the birds aren't really looking where they're going, it doesn't matter what you do, put things on the line, on the power lines or put them on the turbines. If the bird's not looking, it's not looking, it's not going to see them. And you might as well put something there in case it's looking, because they're not always looking down. So it's worth putting sort of things on lines. But really, the best thing to do is to manipulate the environment around the birds. 
it's probably very difficult to say what would warn them <laughs> and that they would respond to, but you can yeah. probably make them sort of take an interest and maybe come to land. Mm. So with cranes and bustards, for example, even silly things like models of birds put out would make them come to land, or just investigate. Yes. And then when they're taking off, then they're likely to be looking around. The answer seems partly to be to manipulate the environment, to call upon them to come down or to change what they're doing, rather than just make the hazard more visible or something like that. But warning them won't necessarily work. Another little example, I've also got involved in why diving birds get caught in drift nets, fishing drift nets, gill nets, because there's a big bycatch problem globally. Uh, And we've come up with a few things which are based around having signals which are going to be conspicuous to the birds at depth, taking account of their very reduced acuity when they're Mm. underwater and things like that. And unfortunately, one of the devices that we put out, we've tested, and it hasn't had any effect at all. And we've just published a paper. We're pleased with publishing this paper because it's got a negative result in it. And it's very difficult to publish negative results. But it suggests that, in fact, the device we put out, which was only a very simple black and white patterns, may have actually attracted the birds to the gill net and it actually slightly increased the chances of them being caught. This was with long-tailed ducks. In one way it was good because it suggested that the thing that I designed was probably conspicuous to the birds. You know, they did see it, but in this case their response, you know, we were thinking, oh, they'd see this and, oh, must get away from that. It's funny, we don't know what it is. Sort of, you know, an aversive. go investigate. And and they, yeah, exactly. It looks as though they've probably gone investigate. So this is where I've called it sensory ecology meets ethology, you know. You understand the sensory system, you could understand what to do in making something conspicuous, but you've got to know then what the behavioural response to that actually is. And we naively assumed that, well, just put something big there that's unusual and, and they will back away from it and not go near it. But, you know, you don't know what they're interpreting as. There's a, there's a real cognitive element. Uh, so it's a real challenge, that is, because you've mm-hmm. got to get the ethologists on side as well. Yeah. yeah well, you need the conservation biologists telling yeah. you what the problems are in the first place. <laughs> oh, yeah, so absolutely. No, 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 you do. And then you need to yeah. look at the... Yeah. We all have to work together more. There you go. But, you yeah, know, there's no simple answers. So I suppose cognition is also super important when it comes to captive animals, like the animals here at London Zoo, for example. How do they acquire information about their environment and how do they adapt their behavior based on that? And how to deal with their enclosure, for example, or with the presence of people. Now, our next guest is very well experienced at getting the best out of our animal senses. Rob Harland apparently took his first steps into zookeeping some 20 years ago, which surely means he must have been about five. (laughs) So, Rob... You're in charge of the animal activities section here at London Zoo, so surely this means you're, on a day-to-day basis, essentially living the dream of sensory ecology and cognition. Oh, well, that's a wonderful way of putting it. Uh, Yeah, I'm certainly very lucky to do the job that I do. A huge part of uh, the work I do day-to-day, working with the animals and and training them for our live demonstrations, uh, allows you to understand them and get an insight into their world. And, And also, I think the best training kind of creates a language by which you can communicate with each other, the animal can communicate with you and, and vice versa. So Rob, you have a very special story to tell us about a kitten turned zoo ambassador. Yeah, absolutely. About four years ago now, 
uh, we were lucky enough to take on a, a serval called Xena. And she's got quite a sad story, but I hope uh, a happy ending. She was confiscated um, at Heathrow in 2010, where a gentleman was trying to smuggle her into the country uh, under the guise of her being a domestic cat. Thankfully, uh, the animal centre at Heathrow realised this was the case um, and that she was in fact a serval and she was confiscated. And the reason he was smuggling her into the country is he was going to mate her with a, a male domestic cat to create savannah cats. Uh, which sadly there's a really big market for, they go for thousands of pounds, but in order that uh, she would be easier to put to a male cat, he'd actually had all of her claws surgically removed, so that's all of her front claws and her back claws as well, uh, which for any felid profoundly changes the way they experience their environment and changes their uh, physical capabilities. So she had a really tough start in life. Thankfully there's a a gentleman who works really closely uh, with Heathrow Animal Centre who finished her hand rearing and then she moved on to Chester Zoo uh, where she was for a number of years. Uh, Sadly there they kept her with a male which was completely the right thing to do to give her the chance to behave as as a serval. However because she doesn't have any claws and big cat courtship can be quite aggressive, even successful courtship can, he injured her on a number of occasions occasions and they they quickly realised that keeping her with other servals just wasn't something they could do. If you don't have claws in the cat world, you can't defend yourself. So just for our listeners, a serval, how how big are they? So it's a cat? Yeah. It's from? So their range is much of sub-Saharan Africa. Some small isolated populations in North Africa, although they may well have become extinct in those particular areas because there hasn't been sightings for for quite a while there. We generally find them in grasslands and inland wetlands as well. What they really like is the long lush grass around uh, waterways Um, and we find them hunting there a lot uh, and they go after frogs and small birds and rodents. Uh, They're actually quite at home in and around water which makes them reasonably unusual for a cat. In terms of their size, so we've got the the female serval Xena and she weighs about eight kilos so she's quite a small animal. In terms of her height she's probably about 80 centimetres or so high. Individuals can get a lot bigger. I think she's a small example of a female serval. Males are are quite a bit bigger. They actually have the longest legs and largest ears in relation to body size of, of any of the cat family which enables them to hunt really effectively in these long grasses, especially with the use of their ears because their eyesight is difficult to see through the complex environment where they do their hunting. We just learned about that paucity of data. The the trade-off between like using sight versus like auditory. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and I feel by me remembering this, I kind yeah. of sort of have done some <laughs> cognitive behaviour yeah. right here. We're <laughs> turning you, we're turning you into a cognitionist. Cognitionist has now been coined. <laughs> you heard it here first. So you mentioned yeah. that she didn't have any claws. Yes. How how yeah. did this affect her? I mean, obviously in the wild they yeah. use these claws for protection, but here in the case of Xena, because she was already a captive animal, mm-hmm. how did that affect her behaviour. So I would say that the really big things that it's affected, I mean firstly if you think that she can't be kept with other servals anymore, that's a really profound impact on her on her life. But then day to day I think the really the really sad thing we see is that she, she can't really climb and getting up high is, is a challenge for her. We've had to adapt her enclosure so that she can get up high and low and move around with relative ease and, and that was a trial and error we had to work out the kind of slopes and angles we needed, the kind of things that gave her enough grip to, to walk on. But also when we 
think about servals, probably the, the physical thing that they do that is the most impressive is their ability to leap. So can leap up to, to 12 foot high, which is incredible. But, but she just fundamentally can't do that. And it's not about taking off. She's got the, the muscle mass and the, the energy and power to leap. But what she can't do successfully is land. Mm. Um, because in the removal of her claws, what they did was take away all of her digits, uh, the bones within it. We, we number P1, 2 and 3, the phalanges, uh, as we go away from the body of the hand or the paw in her case. And all of her P3s where the claws are attached have been surgically removed. So all that she has to land on are the remnants of the joint that connected uh, her P2s to her P3s. So Ooh. this is, is really unpleasant for an Sorry, that's really, really, really unpleasant. Really unpleasant. Yeah. You should have just seen Rob just pointing at the bits of the fingers essentially that would be missing so she she basically she has like little stumps she has you can't actually tell because the tissue has been left mm. there so mm. she has these kind of floppy ends to her toes yeah. really but if you actually look at the anatomy of a feeling poor uh, you'll see that they would have had to have cut through significant tendons and ligaments as well in order to do that. So she has this challenge there. What she is, though, is still a servile in terms of her personality. She wants to do these things, and she's only, I think, occasionally aware of her limitations because she will really exert herself and then perhaps feel the after-effects of that because of those challenges. So our job is to give her an environment where she can still exercise and she can still move, uh, and she can succeed in doing as much as possible as a servo and so so she can keep her servo senses tingling absolutely that's a wonderful way of putting it <laughs> so we trained her to, to do a number of different husbandry behaviors but it became very apparent that she was going to be a, a great candidate for kind of further training because she was so confident around us so confident around the public and it got to the point where we were able to kind of walk her in different areas initially on on a harness but then actually she was so good we could just take the harness off and she would she would just follow us uh, and so we we're able to bring her out into a, a large display area which at certain times a year actually has really long grasses in it so she gets to kind of walk through these long grasses uh, we get her to chase a lure so she can really exert herself we have to do that in quite a controlled way because she will overexert herself mm. and we just have to be mindful of her challenges although of course a massive benefit to keeping her moving to, to fight against the arthritic changes which will definitely have happened in her paws and will continue to, to uh, become compounded in age um, so yeah we get her out we manage to exercise her a lot and she helps us tell a story which I think is really important uh, we use her to open a dialogue about the illegal wildlife trade yeah. um, of which you know she's a part um, and it's a challenge facing nature all over the world but she she's an ambassador for that uh, and she's also a byproduct of it so a sad story but it's a good one for people to hear because mm. behind every savannah cat um, yeah. which are very there's popular, there's going to be a serval that's yeah. probably gone through almost exactly that. Well, I've never heard about savannah cats before in my no. entire life. I'm, oh. I'm not a very catty person. I'm no, more, no. I'm more a doggy person, but um, yeah. Yeah, I've never heard of it. So how often does she do her ambassador role here at ZSL? So she comes out every single day during the season. Uh, and in fact, we also get her out whenever she wants to throughout the rest of the year as well. So every day she gets this chance to come out and, uh, and exercise in this area or have some free time as well outside of our demonstrations. There is always a point of choice with all the animals that we have in our display. So they choose to participate. So with her, we go in there and we give her the cue to kind of go into the box that we move her down to a, a, another pen before she's released into our display area. 
And sometimes she's she's an individual. Sometimes she's just like, no, don't want to come out, whatever. And so we're like, okay, fair enough. And then we, we generally give her another opportunity to come out if she wants to. And if she doesn't, we just we just let her chill out for the day. You know. Even an ambassador has an off day. Absolutely. <laughs> you can't ambassador all the time, non-stop. <laughs> That's a big responsibility. With it great is. power comes great yeah. responsibility. Yes, heavy hangs the crown. Absolutely. I was just keeping the, um, the Spider-Man mm-hmm. puns going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, Claudia, I think uh, my senses are officially overloaded. Um, That was a lot of information. So really, cognition happens all the time. I've noticed that now. So where do you see the biggest application of this to the conservation world? Well, obviously, there's a million things it can be applied to. And of course, there are animals that are incredibly endangered and would benefit a lot from any sort of cognitive behavior, cognitive practices. But I think in recent years, there has been an emergence of what scientists call nuisance species. And these are species that basically cohabit in cities with us. So if you think in London, you have foxes that raid trash that sort of invade people's gardens and that people find really, really annoying. So unfortunately, this is a concern for conservationists because people are less likely to care about them or not less likely, but just you see them all the time. So you don't really consider them as endangered and they're actually annoying to people. So I think that there is less of a motivation to protect them. But in terms of cognition, These animals behave completely different than their wild counterparts. So they are bolder, they are fearless, basically. They may rely more on problem solving and all these different cognitive abilities that help them exploit our resources. So all the food that we throw out or the the water sources that we have. And in my case, for example, I saw this firsthand with the chakma baboons that I studied. So chakma baboons are a real pest in southern Africa. And I think there are a lot of cases where they destroy crops or tourist camps or cities and, and... and they really cause problems for people. And I think if we focused a bit on how these animals learn, how they respond to stimuli, how they acquire information, then we could come up with a way to to find something that either deters them or that mitigates this conflict with humans. So you said you are chakma baboons that you studied down in Namibia. How mm-hmm. do you study the behavior of baboons? Do you just follow them around yes pretty like much. a really creepy stalker yeah that's exactly and i i think we often think like every time we start a field season the bubbles are like oh no these guys again like they, they've <laughs> now i've got back. to watch what i'm doing because yeah, they're writing everything down <laughs> yeah no we really do follow them like all the time and we witness firsthand what it's like to have a troop of baboons go through your campsites they destroy absolutely everything I feel like their technique is like destroy and conquer. And that's why they're so annoying to people because it's not like they gently explore a water pipe. It's like they destroy the water pipe, they drink the water and then they just leave it there. And then the next time they go back, they do exactly the same thing. (laughs) So hooligans. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is where cognition could potentially be of use, you know. I mean, they're likely to respond to a pipe because it's exposed. But what if you bury the pipe? How can you deter baboons? 
how do they respond to different options what works mm. best that's i think where conservation and cognition would merge really nicely that was really really interesting thank you very much claudia now if you've been inspired by any of the topics in this podcast this sounds like some sort of tv announcement please go to our website google wild science podcast where you can listen to an excellent podcast episode on how our keepers use behavioral management to keep our zoo animals happy and healthy think applied cognition galore a little bit like the serval story I suppose if we learned one thing today, Claudia, it's that, you know, um, animals already are often quite street smart. We have to street smart or sky smart a few, say, birds of prey so they don't <laughs> fly into power lines or wind turbines. But I suppose um, really as conservation biologists also, we have to get a little bit more street smart to think about cognition. Yeah, well, and I think in terms of animals that live in urban areas, any sort of strategy we come up with to mitigate conflict obviously requires the full participation of everyone. So if we come up with some crafty trash can that foxes can't open or raid, then I think people have to make sure that they follow the instructions and that they really apply this knowledge themselves as well. So cognitive learning I think, for yeah, us as well. Exactly. So I, I do think that people also need to become a bit more street smart and realize that, you know, we're not alone and our actions do have consequences and those consequences are unfortunately not only affecting us but also the rest of the animals we live with. Mm -hmm.